0: Amen. Would you stand with me, please, as Bob comes this morning to read to us from God's Word.
1: In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time... Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho he laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son Abram and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son Sagab in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua son of Nun this is the word of the Lord from 1st Kings 16 verses 29 through
0: 34 amen thank you you may be seated A couple of weeks ago, a survey was released by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. They are one of the largest evangelical Christian campus ministries in the world. And they did a survey across 127 college campuses, and they asked only for confessional Christian college students to take the survey. And they asked these college Christian students across 127 campuses. What are the most important social issues to Christian students in college today? Now, before I show you their their responses, I want you to think these are current college students. This was just done in the last couple of months. They're not millennials. They're Gen Zers. They're the group coming after the millennials. And as I said, just to clarify, every single one of these surveyed said they are a confessional Christian. And here were their responses. The most important social issues to Christian students in college today, number one, big time number one, racial justice, climate change, foster care, adoption, orphan care, reduce, reducing abortion, religious tolerance and religious freedom, police reform, criminal justice reform, and global poverty. These, these were Christian college students who said these— are the most important social issues to us today. Now, I don't know how this list hits you, but I'll just say you could try to talk these young people out of being so passionate about these things. But good luck with that, right? Much like they probably couldn't talk you out of being passionate about the things you're passionate about, it's probably not going to work to try to say, you know, you you need to reorient some of this. You need to care less about this, more about this. And, and if we, as the church, say to the younger generation coming up, those aren't our priorities, so we're not going to address them. We think you shouldn't care about them. We, we, if we, as the church, those of us who are in the older generations above them, say, you know, what we're going to do instead is we're going we're to snipe at you on Facebook. We're going to try to corner you at Thanksgiving and set you straight, you know, whatever it might be. It, it's, not, it's not going to work. If the church has a closed posture... To, to young Christians and what they care about, then, then we should not expect those generations to be with us much longer. These are things that are important to them, and so what would it look like instead if the church would lead the way and give a biblical framework for how the Bible addresses some of the most important issues That are the volatile issues in our culture today. What if we were able to say to younger Christians, but really to people of all ages, you know what, the Bible has a lot to say about a lot of these things too. So why not start there and together let's find God's heart for so many of these things that are so hard to talk about, so contentious, so politicized in our culture. Let's find God's heart for them and let the church give that biblical framework to make our way forward. As we've been talking about the stories of the kings throughout this summer, I began this series by saying most Christians will admit they know their New Testament a lot better than their Old Testament. And if that is true, most of us would also say if there's any part of the Old Testament we know least about, it's probably the period of the kings of Israel and Judah. And yet, these stories are as relevant to the times in which we're living in this culture and in this nation as any other scriptures you'll find in the Old Testament. Because so much of what we're reading about are are leaders and also people who claim to be God's people who sometimes did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and other times there are leaders and people who claim to be God's people who did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And in every single case, we see either the results or the consequences that followed. What does it look like for God's covenant people and leaders who will invoke God's name as a part of their leadership to live faithfully? And in the midst of dark and evil and strange days, to be a light and to stand for truth and to give that that godly biblical framework for which God's people Ought to live and and in which we ought to operate. So, this series I believe is is timely, and and I believe these scriptures are prophetic for us as we look to apply them in 2021. But I also gave us at the very beginning three clarifications about how I'm approaching these stories, and I want to give them again because I think they're important with today's text. First of all, I am not equating Israel and America. So we're not trying to say that everything God said to the nation of Israel or the the kingdoms of northern Israel and southern Judah, that we're not equating those that that America is the fulfillment of all things Israel. Nor am I teaching this as what's called supersessionism, which teaches that the church is the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises to Israel. I believe that there are, are covenant promises that God made specifically to the people group that we call Israel that still stand and so I don't want us to say exclusively the church fulfills all the covenants of Israel and and none of those covenants with those people still matter sometimes we we talk that way like like Israel is not still important to God and the church has fulfilled all of that as if when Christ comes the second time he's going to come directly to Nashville right 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 there in the center of American Christianity that's where Jesus is coming back This is not supersessionism, but we are God's covenant people And so that's what makes these texts so incredibly relevant to us Because God is speaking to his covenant people then and we are his new covenant people now in the church And then the third clarification I gave is that if we are reading and studying these texts correctly, they will step on all of our toes They will step on our toes culturally politically socially personally emotionally And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I told you in week one, there are going to be times where you might think, I am making some subtle reference to to a president or a king or, or a prominent leader or a church leader or an organization, and you might very well be right. And the reason for that is because these things, I believe, apply across the board. God in His consistency and in His demands and expectations for who His people would be He he is, is giving us timeless truths that do apply, no matter the party, the nation, the culture, the person. What does it look like to be God's covenant people? And how do we stand in godliness and in truth in our own time, just as so few people seem to do in the days of the kings of Israel and Judah? And so today as we turn to Ahab... Ahab is king of the northern kingdom who called themselves Israel. We're also told that he was king at the time of Asa, who was the king of Judah. So you remember we saw last week with Rehoboam and Jeroboam, we now have in Israel a divided nation, a divided kingdom. We have a king in the north in Israel and a king in the south in Judah. And, and Ahab is probably, among all of the kings of the north, the only one that gets this much attention throughout the Bible. And the reason for that is because this downward spiral that we see the northern kingdom of Israel going down towards destruction. Ahab is the worst of the worst of the worst of those kings. God describes Ahab in this text as one who did more evil than any king before, who aroused the anger of the Lord more than any king before But we also see that in in most cases, the people of God are all too willing to follow Him down this path. And so what you might feel or have felt during this series has been a little bit of redundancy. I've had some of the same points week after week. It's not because I'm running out of material, okay? It's because there are some consistent themes that roll through these passages and these texts. And one of those that we've seen before, but I I really want to hang it over us today as our guiding principle is that the character God expects from his people is the same character he displays in himself. And this, by the way, was most perfectly given to us in Jesus Christ. Whereas lots of others demonstrated godly character before, Jesus is the perfect model. He is the perfect in-flesh example of what God's character is supposed to look like. So if we have any doubt how we ought to think, what our attitude should be, how we ought to live we can look to Jesus and remove all doubt, right? God's character is the character he expects from his people. And today, as we think about what that looks like in this story and how it applies to us, I have two points, and the two points today are are two word pairs that describe the kind of character God expects from his people. And here's the first one, and it comes from the text that we just read. Obedience and faithfulness. A, a, a consistent life of obedience lived out faithfully in, in a walk with God. Obedience and faithfulness. And we read about Ahab in 1 Kings 16. But before we go back to that, I want to, to remind us of something the prophet Samuel said to the first king of Israel, Saul. Because it, it, it begins, it establishes with each king God's expectation of obedience and faithfulness. Under their leadership Samuel replied to Saul And you may remember this is, this is Sort of the last straw Saul has finally committed The last straw and he's been rejected As God's king and Samuel said Does the Lord delight In burnt offerings and sacrifices As much as obeying the Lord To obey Is better than sacrifice And to heed is better Than the fat Of rams God is not looking for empty ritual or religion. But God, what God seeks from us is our, our heartfelt obedience and faithfulness in our hearts and with our lives. And God set that, that pace, that course, from the very beginning of these stories of the kings. This is what I want. I'm not after what, whatever physical things you bring to worship. I'm after your heart, and I'm after obedience and faithfulness. But then we turn to Ahab, 1 Kings 16, which we read a moment ago, verse 29. And it begins sort of in a normal way, like we've read with the other kings. We get some of their their stats. It was in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that Ahab, the son of Omri, became the king of Israel. He reigned in, in Samaria, in Israel, for 22 years. And Ahab's father, though he did evil in the eyes of the Lord... Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And then the text gets more specific. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins like Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, did, but he also married Jezebel. Nobody names their daughters Jezebel, right? He married Jezebel, and she was the daughter of Ethbaal. In the name of her father is the Canaanite god Baal. And in the process of marrying Jezebel, together, they began to serve Baal and worship him. And listen to the action verbs here. Because it doesn't just say that Ahab allowed these things to happen, but with his own hands, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. And with his own hands, Ahab also made an Asherah pole, And in doing so, he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Ahab and Jezebel worshipped Baal, the the Canaanite god of of the storm, of fertility. They they worshipped Asherah, who who demanded that poles be built and, and that shrine and temple prostitutes be used in the process. In the northern kingdom of Israel, the people still calling themselves the people who belong to God, they are not worshipping Yahweh. They're worshipping Baal. They're worshipping Asherah. And the king is the one facilitating all of this with his wicked wife. And the people go along with it. And if you think that this kind of evil worship and idolatry, worshipping false gods, worshipping dead idols, is not a death culture, Much like we we say today, we live in a death culture. Look at what verse 34 says. It was easy to miss. But in Ahab's time, we're told, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. Now this is a big deal. The last part of this tells us that that the consequences that followed were as a result, or they were in accordance with the word of the Lord that was spoken by Joshua. Well, what did Joshua say? Well, look at Joshua 6. Joshua 6, 26. When Joshua had conquered Jericho, he pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. Very specific prophecy and and curse. What did Heel do? Well, under Ahab's leadership, at Ahab's command, they indeed rebuilt the pagan city of Jericho. And in laying its foundations, it cost Heel's firstborn son, Abiram. And, and in building the gates, it cost his youngest son, Segub. Now, I, I have tried throughout this series to sanitize this as best as I can for you at times. I know we have young ears in the room. I know that some of the things that we could say from the stories of the kings, even though they come from scripture, they might make us squirm just a little bit. You've probably noticed in the last couple weeks I've tried to say, hey, you know, go look further into this, right? Find out some more information. I can't sanitize this one for us. In fact, there, there, there is ample archaeological evidence for the ancient pagan practice of what's called the foundation sacrifice that people who worshiped gods like Baal, goddesses like Asherah, when they would build their cities, when they would build their homes, when they would build their palaces, at times they believed the gods demanded that they take an infant, sometimes dead but sometimes alive, put that infant in a jar and build that child into the masonry work of the structure so that somehow this would be a pleasing offering to the gods or goddesses or would ward off evil spirits. Look it up. Ample archaeological evidence that this has happened time and time again. And think about where we are. We're not in in the Canaanite lands. We're not in Phoenicia. We're not in Egypt. This is Israel. This is part of the promised land that God gave to his people. And instead of worshiping God, the God who made every human life in his own image, instead of worshiping Yahweh who forbade child sacrifice infanticide, anything along those lines, Ahab, the king of Israel, is participating in the vilest of pagan practices. And just as Joshua prophesied, for Hiel it cost him his sons, most likely offered as a foundation sacrifice. You want to talk about a culture that has no respect for the sanctity of human life, a death culture, a culture that doesn't protect the vulnerable, the innocent, whether unborn or born, in many ways we live in that kind of culture and in many ways Israel became that kind of culture too so this is not a small thing that that Ahab came under this curse because children were readily sacrificed for the building up of a human kingdom again our guiding principle today the character God expects from his people is the same character he displays in himself well Ahab and and God's covenant people in Israel, they've strayed about as far away from this as you could go. Yet God still demanded obedience and faithfulness from his people. Ahab was not only disobedient to God and one of the worst idolaters, but he also exploited the people that God had called him to lead and to serve. Not just in the case of of the children, the foundation sacrifice... But he also exploited the people under his care. Certainly the most easily, readily available story of this from Ahab's leadership is the story of Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21. And it leads us to our second word pair. What does godly character look like? Obedience and faithfulness, yes, but also people who pursue righteousness and justice. And the story of of Naboth's vineyard, which... You can read later. It's a long chapter. I'm, I'm going to summarize it for us in a, in a minute. But it is a clear picture of how Ahab represented the opposite of these two words. But before we get to that story, I want you to consider Psalm 89. Psalm 89, in describing God and his kingdom, says these two words, righteousness and justice, are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. And, and in the Hebrew, there were two words for for, one for righteousness, one for justice. And they both kind of meant something different. Setic for righteousness meant, meant completely conforming to God's standards. That's how a person knows they're living a righteous life, conforming to God's standards. Mishpat, the word for justice, meant actually living that out for the good of all people in the community. And so both words are ascribed to God. God sets up standards that he expects his people to follow. He he has set forth and modeled a standard of righteousness. And so in our hearts and lives, we're supposed to be those kind of people. But he also is a God who demands justice for everyone and that his people would stand for justice for everyone. And he demonstrates time and again that he is a God when people who are facing injustice cry out to him, he hears them. And what happens in the Greek New Testament, by the way, all of this is combined into one word, And so if you're reading in your translations and you come across this word, you might think, is it righteousness or is it justice? The way the New Testament teaches that we follow Christ as disciples is with one word. These two things are combined. We are, as God's people, as disciples who seek to be Christ-like. We, woven into the fabric of our being, is righteousness conforming to God's standards and justice. Displaying that righteousness and seeking it seeking the good of our neighbor righteousness and justice so if we go back for just a minute to these two words and we go back to those most important social issues to Christian college students today we can rightly say to them you know what God cares about these things too he cares about righteousness and justice and that's what he seeks out from his people and in particular demands of his covenant people and their leaders Ahab, the story of Naboth and his vineyard is a a, a terrible story of exploitation. Ahab and and Jezebel, as they had built up their palace, were sort of in an eminent domain kind of way, taking over all the land nearby. And there was a a poor man named Naboth who had a small patch of land, and and on it was a small vineyard. And, And Ahab decided he wanted Naboth's land. So he goes to Naboth at first and says, I want to buy it from you, okay? I want to buy you out, I want your family's land. But Naboth says, but you don't understand, this, this isn't just my inheritance. My family's name is tied to our land. And so if I, if I sell you my land for a profit, I'll be dishonoring my family, my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather. So Naboth said, thanks for the offer, but I'm not interested, And it's interesting if you read on into the story how Ahab responds. He goes back to his palace and he starts pouting like a big old baby until Jezebel comes in and says, What's wrong with you? And he tells her the story about Naboth not being willing to sell. And she says, Aren't you the king? Take that land by force. And together they concocted this scheme where they invite Naboth to the palace for a dinner as if he's an honored guest. And if you read this in the NIV, it says they also invited two scoundrels to the meal. And those two scoundrels set up a trap. They framed, they falsely accused Naboth of blasphemy against God and treason against the nation. Naboth was drugged out of the room, and he was stoned to death. And guess what happened next? Ahab and Jezebel took his land as their own. They thought they got away with it, as oftentimes powerful people do. But just like God often does for us, when when we stray, when we're disobedient, when we as his covenant people are not living righteous, obedient lives, when we're not pursuing justice, he brings circumstances or he brings people into our lives to set us straight. And without question, the most common person that came into Ahab's life to speak on behalf of the Lord was the prophet Elijah. You probably remember the most famous story of Elijah. They had a showdown together on Mount Carmel. Ahab showed up with his Baal prophets, 400 of them, chanting and screaming and dancing around, trying to to enact uh, fire from heaven from Baal. And then Elijah steps up after the Baal prophets fail at their task And he says, I want to leave no doubt. I want you to drench this thing with water. I want you to build a trench around it. I want you to saturate this offering so much so that there can be no doubt that if it's consumed by fire, that that the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, did it. And when Elijah calls on the name of the Lord, what happens? Boy, that fire comes down from heaven. It consumes the sacrifice, the altar. It licks up all the water in the trench. There was no doubt that day in 1 Kings 18 that God, the God of Israel, is the living God and Baal was a dead God. You'd think Ahab would have learned his lesson but again he continued on in in the path he was going. So here after Naboth is exploited and taken advantage of, of again Elijah steps onto the scene. And here's what Elijah tells the king. This is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Again, I can't sanitize all of this for us. Because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, he says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants, and I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel slave or free, I will make your house like that of the very first king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam. Your house, your kingdom, is going to come crumbling down. When God hears the cries of those who are oppressed, he acts. And he expects his people to do so. And yet it's glaringly obvious throughout these stories that it's not only the kings, the leaders, who are doing this, but the people are complicit because almost no one will speak up in the face of injustice. There's Elijah and there's Micaiah the prophet. Find me another who's willing to stand up and say what the king is doing is not right. That is not how our God is towards people and that is not how God expects his people to live. In our day when we see those who are oppressed and exploited who, who will be the Elijahs? Who will, among God's covenant people, stand up and speak on their behalf? I say, let it be me, but I I can tell you there are times where I don't do it well. But I also say about our church, let it be us. Let us as God's covenant people not be complicit, not be silent when it's advantageous to us for whatever reason. But when we know, when we see someone claiming to have godly character or to be acting on behalf of God's covenant people, pursuing injustice, not standing up for the oppressed, even if it costs us, because Elijah had to run for his life several times, even when it costs us, let it be us who model God's character, who care about righteousness and justice, who will stand for the oppressed. Do rich and privileged people ever get treated like Naboth? Probably sometimes they do. Probably that happens sometimes to to the rich. But more often than not, it, it happens to the poor, to the minority, to the refugee, to the vulnerable. Who will speak on their behalf? Well, Elijah speaks up. And what happens at the end is two things. There's a very unexpected turn and then there's a wild ending, okay? So I'm going to summarize both for you. There was just so much to read today. Go back and read this on your own time. Trust me to summarize it for you, but, but two different things happen. First of all, the unexpected turn of events. Reminding us one more time of our guiding principle. The character that God expects from his people is the same character he displays in himself. After Elijah confronts Ahab this time about Naboth, something breaks loose, And Ahab repents. And Ahab doesn't repent just by giving lip service like Saul would do. But Ahab tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth, wears that sackcloth for several days, undertakes a fast, and it's God himself who says, Ahab humbled himself. He went around meekly, but God says, Ahab humbled himself. And to me, if there's hope for, for Ahab, there is hope for anyone that God received his repentance. The repentance of one who blatantly committed infanticide, who built his kingdom on the backs of the vulnerable, who exploited people like Naboth, who was married to Jezebel, who fashioned idols and poles with his own hands. God received his, his repentance. He can receive anyone. Who would say to him, I am aware of my sin, I confess it, and God, I want to turn away from it, and I want to be righteous again. I want to be righteous before you. It is such a strange thing that God receives this repentance, but he does. But he also says there are still consequences. Ahab's going to face personal consequences, which we'll see in the ending. But there are also consequences for the people. I will not bring this disaster onto Ahab, God says, but I will bring it in the days of his son. And in the days of his son Ahaziah, the kingdom of the house of Omri falls to the ground. But we've said this before, another consistent thing. What God's people do doesn't just affect us, it affects others. And in particular, what leaders do. Whether you're the leader in the church or an organization or in your family the decisions we make affect others And ahab's decisions affected the people they affected the nation. They affected the next generation for sure The consequences that ahab were to face Didn't change. God told him through elijah dogs are going to lick up your blood brother ahab and so here's where the The wild end to the story happens again. Go read this on your own time after I tell you about it You will want to go read it first kings 22 Ahab goes into battle with the new king of the southern kingdom jehoshaphat And you sort of get this idea that ahab knows what's coming, but he's trying to avoid it He feels like maybe there's still some way that he can escape The consequences for his sin that god told him he would find so they go into battle and he says, hey, you know what? I'm going to go in disguise so nobody knows it's me. But Jehoshaphat, would you put on your shiniest, brightest, kingly robes so that everybody will see you're God's true king? What, what was the strategy? Ahab was trying to hide his identity. So they go into battle. For, for a short period of time, the two kingdoms are united, going out against the king of Aram. Aram. And the king of Aram has 32 chariot drivers. And he tells them, I don't want you to kill another soldier. I don't want you to kill a man, woman, or child. I want the king of Israel dead before the sun goes down. That's Ahab. He's in disguise. He's hiding. Who did the chariot drivers go after? Jehoshaphat, who's dressed so much like a king, and they're chasing him down, and it's as if Jehoshaphat figures out, oh no, look what what Ahab's done to me, and he calls out and says, I'm not Ahab, I'm the other king. So the chariot drivers turn, and in what the Bible describes as a random shot by an archer, an arrow flies through the sky, and it hits Ahab, right in a gap between his armor. And throughout the rest of the day, they take Ahab out where he can watch the fighting from a distance. As the battle rages on, Ahab bleeds out on the ground. And guess what happens then? The dogs come up and and they lick up his blood just as God said it would happen. I mean, who needs Braveheart, right, with stories like this? (laughs) Who needs Gladiator? Who, Who needs game of thrones lord of the rings no you can keep lord of the rings that's a good one but who who needs those things just read the stories of the kings you can't you can't make anything better than this because your sins will find you out you can hide and duck those consequences all you want but but our decisions affect us and they defect they affect others and god's word will be proven to be true The character that God displays in Himself is the character that God expects from His people. And when we find ourselves, when we've lost the plot, when we're off track, when we're pursuing the things of death, not the things of life, when we're pursuing the things of darkness, not the things of light, the same call that God gave through Elijah to Ahab is the same call He gives to us repent and turn away from your sin and come back into the light. Or perhaps come into the light for the first time and stop living for yourself and stop living in darkness. And let me tell you something I think these stories teach us about repentance and about consequences. There is personal repentance, it absolutely is a must. Repentance has to start in my heart, no one else can do that for me. But there's also a corporate, a communal repentance where what we see in these stories is, yes, God's calling individuals to get their heart right, but he's also speaking through the prophets to all of his covenant people, and he says, who are you all going to represent? Are you going to be my people, or are you going to keep chasing after these things that don't represent godly character and are only going to lead to more darkness and death? The same thing is true with consequences. Ahab faced his personal consequences, but the people of God suffered because of his decisions as well so the call goes out to all of us does God have your heart and and the and and the call goes out to us as a church as a community does God have our heart and are we displaying godly character just as God has demonstrated in himself here in this community and in every place that God would send us As we bring things to a close, today I give you again the perfect picture of godly character, Jesus Christ himself. Do we reflect Christ-like character as his disciples today in our lives, in our families, in our culture? If not, then the call again goes out, repent, let's turn our individual hearts and our corporate hearts back to him that we might be persons and a people who reflect that Christ-like godly character in the midst of our own strange and evil days.